studio, I guess. I have uh, Will Button. Hey, everyone. Jonathan Hall. Hey, hey, hey. And our guest, Matt or Matthew Topple? Which one do you prefer? Matt Topple. Matt and Matt Topple. Okay. All right. I was trying to find both. Everybody, it always goes back and forth. Topple, Topple. It's Topple. Never goes, you know. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, that's good to know. Do you want to introduce yourself to us and tell us, you know, why you're here, why you're on the show? Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, obviously, Matt Topol. Uh, I'm a software engineer at Voltron Data currently, um, and I'm on the PMC for the Apache Ira project. That's the project management committee. Um, and I also wrote the book on Apache Ira. There's, <laughs> there's just the one, there's, at least currently there's just the one, uh, in-memory analytics with Apache Ira. Uh, you can get it on Amazon, you can get it at Pack. Um, but yeah, I'm here to uh, talk about Apache Arrow and all things related to it. That's great because Apache Arrow is like my favorite data frame analytics library and I've been using it um, all the time and it's become like practically, I don't know, somewhere between a religion and a cult for me. I'm not sure how emotionally healthy that is, but that's, you know. Aren't, that's aren't cults that. religions too? Like, can't you be both? Should we really be doing this on the show? I don't know. I just how you get between two things that are the same thing. <laughs> uh, Hold it! Before we go down that path, we have another guest to introduce. We can't we can't ignore oh, yeah. our guest. Who, Matt, who's with who's, you there, Matt? Who's your co-host there? This would be Penny. Penny, my Penny. super little lady. She's uh about fifteen years old. She's very oh. cute. You know, very very pretty. She's a diva. As she should be. Yeah, I love my little kitty. I've had her for I've had her for almost that entire time. Uh, we took her in uh, off the street right before I moved up to Connecticut for work right out of college. Wow! Right on. Yeah, and the vet estimated she was roughly a year and a half when we took when I took her in, and I've had her ever since, which is actually really nice because when when you when, when, when you get your first job right out of college and the first time you're living completely on your own without any roommates or anything, it's nice to have a living creature that relies on you when you come mm-hmm. home to keep you company. Right, for sure. I mean, it's totally that um, that anchor point that you need. Oh, yeah. Especially because they cuddle. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Which they can't say the same for humans. <laughs> eh, some humans no, might not want that from your human roommates. Right. That's true. Depends. There's rules that get involved at that point. Just <laughs> like restraining orders, you know, when you mess it up somewhere. Is this from experience, Jillian? Oh, you never know. You never know. I've got some pretty crazy life stories. Although I don't think I'd want to live alone again, which just makes you like, I don't know. Must be a glutton for punishment over here. <laughs> I see that your 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 co guest (laughs) has has abandoned us and left, so I I think it's time to get back to Arrow. (laughs) Yep, yep. I I would like to hear. I mean, I've already talked to Matt, and I I know that he's a real straight shooter. Q Q uh, 
uh, drum, whatever, you know, there arrow jokes here. There we go. Waiting for it. Well, you're letting I don't, me I don't have the sound effects. I think only I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying. Look at him over here. He's like, just wait. I'll get it. We'll clean it up in post. Oh, there, there. you go. That, that was did it good. for me. Thank you. Oh, I got it. Here we go. Oh, oh my God. That was awkward. <laughs> Anyways. So, I was going to say, I've, I've interviewed Matt on a previous uh, podcast, uh, Shameless Self-Promotion, Cup of Go is a great podcast to listen to. Um, so, I know a little bit about Apache Arrow already, but I'm going to assume that people other than Jillian in our audience don't. Would you start by maybe introducing what Apache Arrow is, what problem it solves, and that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, sure. So Apache Arrow is an in-memory, column-oriented data format. Um, The the intent there is that that because the representation of the data in memory is identical to the way it's represented on the wire or anything like that, you can pass data back and forth through systems without the cost of serialization and deserialization. Um, you can pass it between runtimes in the same process with zero copy. And the idea is that you can reduce the number of copies that are necessary to process data, while the data is also, since it's column-oriented, is also very, very efficient for a lots of analytical and computational uh, workflows. And there are implementations of the Arrow format in insert your language here. There's probably an Arrow implementation for it. <laughs> uh, off the top of my head, there's Go, C++, C, Ruby, Rust, Python, Java, JavaScript, TypeScript, uh, Julia, uh, probably others I'm missing, but you know, R, there's an R implementation. Uh, and the idea being, and because there's so many implementations in all these languages, and because the representation of it is identical in memory, in no matter which language you're using, is extremely useful as data interchange, computational, and and interactive speed uh, performance. And so you end up with a lot of systems that are using Arrow both as their internal memory format for computation, but also as just the data interchange. And the project, the Arrow, the Arrow project itself, has expanded beyond just that representation. You've got an RPC protocol, um, Arrow Flight. You've got an extension on that RPC protocol, Apache Arrow Flight SQL, which is a additional um, definitions for that protocol that are centered around uh, the using databases in SQL situations. There's ADBC, Arrow Database Connectivity, which is basically like ODBC, only it's Arrow native, and you get enormous performance gains over using JDBC or ODBC by using ADBC. Um, and we've got different drivers implemented for ADBC, such as Snowflake with the most recent one. There's obviously Arrow Flight driver. There is uh, Postgres and SQLite drivers. And we're also working on other 
drivers for seven-day basis for AWC there, which is itself just a kind of a C interface with a lot of drivers implemented um, so that you can use it from anywhere. Yep, that's kind of it in a nutshell. So whenever you talk about um, it being in memory and these different libraries, um, do you, so do you share just like a pointer to the same memory location or do you actually just share the data and, and put each, so, each person wants a different copy of that data? There, 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 there's two different primary ways that the data is shared. Um, there is an IPC protocol uh, for going, you know, across the wire or between processes, which is essentially a very small flat buffer message with some metadata, followed by the raw buffers, just okay. just the just the bytes as they are in memory. And the benefit there being that when something receives an IPC protocol, you don't have to copy or deserialize that the, that those body buffers. Whatever you receive that IPC protocol on, the bytes as they are, are what you want. And there's that tiny flat buffer message with the metadata to tell you how to interpret it. Um, the other way of passing data back and forth is what's called the C data interface, which is a small C struct that effectively contains that, that same metadata, you know, the format, you know, is this a string array? Is this a in 64 or whatever? It contain it, and it contains or it contains the information such as, you know, the number of buffers that are there, the number of nulls in the in the column, the total length of the column, and then just the raw pointers to the memory. You know, just know. If, you have, if there are two buffers, then you have, you know, two pointers that point to the, just the raw body of the body buffers there, and it's the more raw memory. Um, and it works the same way for complex columns like nested struct columns or list columns, because Arrow has a very a very thorough type system. And so in that case, you also have pointers to the children arrays in that same struct, so that when you pass data within the same process between different runtimes, you're just passing pointers. Wow, that's and cool. Copies. It is very cool. Yeah, I really appreciate you guys like did not mess around with the everybody is getting the same data all the time and just picked that as like, you know, like, I don't know, that was like your line in the sand or something because I work on a lot of interdisciplinary teams where everybody's using like different languages and different things. And Arrow is the only library that I've really found like no matter what, you know, we're using Python, C++, R, usually it's like some mix of those in bioinformatics. Uh, everybody really does get the exact same data, and it's it's very nice because that does not that does not typically happen, right? You'll get like these weird little like idiosyncrasies between data sets, whether or not people are accessing them, and like you know Python or R, and then people start to write these like libraries on top to make sure like you know okay when you read the data in with R, you need to make sure that you do this checking, and when you read it in with Python, you need to do this. But with Arrow, yep, yep. like all that has gone away. Yeah, I mean, I mean the the, the project itself. Most of the implementations are in a single monorepo, which definitely helps a lot in a lot of the discussions and keeping things as close between the implementations as possible. Like there's also an effort made in a lot of development to try to keep the interfaces 
the actual APIs in the libraries at least similar. Obviously, they're going to be more idio idiosyncratic for the individual languages, but they tr we try to keep the APIs similar between the languages just so that if you're jumping from, say, PyArrow to the C++ library or the Go library, you can still kind of orient yourself in what the, what the functions do and stuff because things are named similarly, the APIs are similar in the way they interact with data and stuff like that to kind of keep that easy ease of use between the different languages. The Arrow project started back in 2016-ish. Was actually one of the co-creators of Arrow was uh, Wes McKinney, who created Pandas. So, what are the typical, um, what are like the prime use cases for Arrow? Uh, anything to do with data? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I is there is like is there like a um, a barrier to entry? Like if if you've got X amount of data, it it may or may not be worth it. So, but like once you approach, once you pass yeah. this threshold, it's kind of a no brainer. So be because Arrow is column-oriented, if your primary workflow is very, very row-oriented, then Arrow may not be as beneficial at small at, as you get larger and larger data sizes if you need to access, you know, lots of columns in a very row-oriented rec. Most analytical processes are going, or analytical workflows are accessing smaller numbers of columns, subsets of columns, and are going to highly benefit from column-oriented access for vectorized processes. And, that, and, that's, that, and that's where Arrow really shines, especially for any kind of ETL or data transfer or computation, because, because the data is in that column-oriented format, even in memory, it means that you can use SIMD and other vectorization very, very efficiently with Arrow data. Um, for and and so if you're, you know, uh, Meta released their open source uh, computation engine Velox, um, which which we're doing a lot of work with, and the internal memory format for Velox is effectively Arrow. Uh, DuckDB. The internal memory representation for DuckDB is effectively Arrow. It's not quite identical. There are some things that they do slightly differently because they found that what well, in certain ways that are their optimal performance and things like that. But for the most part, it's mostly identical to Arrow. And we're actually working with them in a lot of ways to try to find those situations where they were like, this representation is more efficient for this and trying to add those to the arrow spec to reduce that kind of you know uh, fracturing and keep everyone and keep arrow relevant in all these spaces and then you get the fact that you know it's extremely performant not just for the internal computational aspects but for getting the data in and out you know what uh, duckdb does provide an interface using arrow's c data interface you can get Arrow data directly out of DuckDB and avoid the copy because it'll give you the pointers to the data that it allocated as the result as the result data. Oh, I got you. Right on. And, and, and so, the row data, though. What's up? 
I was going to say, even on the row data, uh, I had like a data set that was like 3 billion rows by, I don't know, like 12 or 15 columns. And the whole, like the whole like data pipeline ran in like a couple oh, yeah. of hours on like on serverless data infrastructure too. So it was like, you know, under the 16 gigs of memory. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Are cheap. absolutely. I mean, when I say a very row oriented access pattern, I mean like, ex like explicitly like, you are looking at the value in every column row by row as the way you're accessing the data, which is actually fairly rare. Most workflows will work exactly the way you want them to and do better in a column-oriented fashion in most cases. There are cases where that row-oriented accessing is important, but they're actually fewer than you, than you think. So you, you've talked about databases here, and, I, and that, that's what I wanted to ask about. Like when you when when Will asked where would you use Apache Arrow, and you said anywhere where you use data. Uh, you know, base is the word that springs to mind. Databases. Everybody uses a database. Uh, <clears throat> I'm I'm assuming you need specific databases that are designed to work with Apache Arrow. You can't just like install a plugin and suddenly use Apache Arrow to query Postgres or something like that. Is that is that accurate? It's actually hilarious that you use that as the example. Okay. <laughs> there, is being, there is work being done to add a to create a Postgres plugin to provide a Arrow Flight SQL interface oh, awesome. to Postgres. Nice. That would be very cool. Then I'd have vector databases, and I'd have Arrow, and I just have all the things that I want Postgres. But in general, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Like in general, okay. you're right. A database needs to have the ability to ingest the arrow data or export the arrow data to actually leverage it because it is itself, it, it's a format, it's a memory format. The database has to know what you're talking about to give it the data. Um, but above and beyond just databases, services, processes, you know, arrow flight is not RPC protocol. You know, uh, so if you're passing data around and creating a data service, Arrow is an exceptional way to do that as your memory format because of the efficiency. You know, because of the fact that you're reducing the number of copies as you pass that data around. You're, you don't need to serialize and deserialize the data as it comes in and out. Now, if, if bandwidth is, a, is your problem there, the IPC protocol does have a compression option. And therefore, like you, and that's where you kind of have to play with settings and, and the idea of going, is it, you know, you get the benefits if you pass data around by not having to sterilize or deserialize. But if you need the data to be smaller to pass it to bandwidth reasons, you can compress it, get a faster, get the faster network transfer at the cost of the compressed and decompressed at the end. Now, one of the benefits of most of the Arrow implementations will actually look at the size of the compressed buffer. And if it's not actually smaller, it'll throw it out and just use the uncompressed buffer. Oh, because, the protocol, because the protocol allows the compression at the buffer level. And you can have compressed buffers and uncompressed buffers alongside alongside one another. 
And so you can kind of get the best of both worlds as possible. You know, obviously it's going to depend on the implementation with the advantage of it. You know, and, and that's kind of the name of the game in a lot of the Arrow spec things that, you know, the more active implementations implement are, are, are more complete. And if you look at if you look at the Arrow documentation, the Arrow site, there's actually like a full um there's a, there's a full table kind of going of like the main implementations and what features are or are not implemented of the Arrow spec in all of them. Um, the most the most complete ones are the C++, the Java, and the Go, and the Rust are the most complete. Um, the the Pi Arrow is super complete because it's just a thin veneer on the, the Python system, thin veneer on the C++ library. Like a, a lot of, like there's, there, there's like kind of like two, two different types of implementations there where you have the native implementations and then you have the implementations that are just kind of wrappers around the C++. Yeah, which I am here for because uh, with the Python implementation, it works really well with a library called Cython, which lets you call like kind of lower level uh, C or C++. And with the, the data set that I was talking about earlier, where it was 3 billion rows, I was getting to this point where it was running for like two or three hours and then there would just be a memory leak like somewhere and I couldn't figure <laughs> out where it was. And so instead of, you know, figuring out where it was, I was like, well, screw this. I'm just going to write everything in Cython because that's how I solve these kinds of problems. Um, and then the, the memory use of like the entire, you know, of the entire program as a whole, like just, you know, just like dropped. And I was very impressed with myself over that one. So that was great. <laughs> that was very nice, yeah. I, I played and Arrow, too, of course. I played a little bit with the with the Cython stuff. Like the Pi Arrow is actually uses Cython itself to do the communication with the, Pi, with the Python and the and the, the plus lab so the Arrow library. So it's using Cython right directly there, anyways. Um, I yeah, really I took a look at the Pi Arrow implementation. It is almost all Cython, which yep. is really cool. Yeah, I played a little bit around with it, and it it's it can get confusing sometimes. Cython is not the easiest yes. thing to play with. <laughs> so all the power to you there. Better than it used to be. But yeah, it is It is kind of, uh, it takes some getting used to, I guess. But it's great if you're interfacing like with other libraries as well. Like I work with a lot of other file uh, formats, which are, you know, maybe like 10, 20 years old. And a lot of them are like, you know, C, C++, these kind of, they're not legacy because they still exist, but they're before all kind of the nice libraries that we have now. So being able to like integrate things uh, with Cython is nice for me personally. I don't know about anybody else, just me. I'm really curious about how you got onto an Apache project. Were you working on it before it was an Apache project? Like, I've always kind of wondered because the patch. It sounds like you know this kind of like very glamorous thing. Like, ooh, it's an Apache project, but I have no idea how they get started. How one gets to be working on Apache? Oh, projects. it is. I'd really like it to is know more super about that glamorous. Process. I can say as a fellow TNC <laughs> on an Apache project. <laughs> Oh no, is it just unpaid labor or like all my hopes and dreams about to be dashed here? Oh, it is absolutely no. unpaid labor. Absolutely unpaid labor. Oh, okay. I, actually, I, I'm, I'm lucky and I'm extremely lucky in that my, my current position at Voltron Data is I I work on the Arrow Library. That's my day job now. Like I get paid to work on the Arrow Library. That's what I do. So I'm very, very lucky in that respect. Um, as far as how I got how I got started here, like uh, I, I wasn't part of the Arrow Inception. Like I, I learned about the project separately entirely. Um, the, the general process for something becoming an Apache project is you go through what's called 
incubator and you talk with the Apache Foundation and they give, they'll usually like give you someone who's very familiar with the way of, with the Apache way of doing things and then you know you eventually can become a top level Apache project in and of itself and mostly it's about governance about the way you operate the governance of the project is is the big part of what makes something an Apache thing. But as far as how I got started in it there, uh, before I worked at Voltron, I joined Voltron last year. Before that, I worked at a financial software company, uh, Backset Research Systems. And I worked on a project that, I worked on a, a product that was effectively just, basically just a giant vector calculator. That's what I worked on. The project is basically just a giant vector calculator you know, I started working on the engine itself, eventually moved up to working on the application side of things and serverization and, and stuff. And I had a project that I was trying to do to create visualizations. You know, users can put in parameters, you know, like I want the standard deviation of the price for the last 200 days of the entire S&P 500. And they get a column of that. You know, and they can have all their columns and the parameters, and we wanted to create the ability for them to create charts from that report. You know, chart this column against that column, and so on and so forth. And the problem you run into is, well, at any time a user can add or remove a column. So I do not have a static schema, and I can have anywhere from 10 to 2,000 columns. I can have anywhere from hundred to three and a half million rows and at any point user can add or change columns that will completely change all of that and somehow I need to be able to create interactive speed charts so I went to a Hadoop conference and was just asking around this was like in 2018 I'm just kind of asking around people for ideas of what could possibly enable me to do this so that I could keep updating the data and do all these things and whatnot. And everybody told me I had too many requirements. I would tend to agree with them. <laughs> <laughs> of course, like, yeah, you want too many things. And, my hope, and the problem is like, okay, but those are my requirements. Right. <laughs> and so uh, I learned about Arrow at that new conference. And I also came across um, Apache Drill, which is That's superset because you keep saying charts, and I keep thinking superset. Superset, superset either didn't exist yet or wasn't very popular yet at the time that this happened. It might not have. I think it might um, have been incubating around that. Drill. I don't know. I mean, Drill is a distributed compute engine. It. it if you know, but if you know, if you've heard of Dremio, Dremio was built on Drill originally. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, another fun story is that Arrow itself actually came out of Drill's internal vector representations. Apache Drill's value vectors are what became Arrow. So, anyways, I ended up hacking together this this system that basically. I made a Python service using PyArrow that accepted an Arrow IPC table and wrote the data as a Parquet file to an HDFS cluster. 
Very nice. And then I had Apache Drill running on the same nodes as the data nodes of the HTTPS cluster to get the short circuit reads. So that basically what happened is you, you do your report, you get the compute. It writes the result set as a, as a parquet file. And then when you want a chart, you send a the, the front end just sends a request that service, which creates SQL from it and sends it to the drill cluster, which queries that parquet file and returns the results. And if they change and if they add columns or change the data at all, I just overwrite it with a new parquet file. The next query goes in, drill goes, oh, the metadata says that this has been this has been rewritten. Up, refresh the metadata and then run the query. And because the drill nodes are running on the same boxes as the HTTPS data clusters, it's all super fast and interactive speed. Sub-second queries, the whole nine yards. And that was kind of my introduction to Arrow in the first place. Though. From there, I, 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 I was building other services using Go. And I was like, I want to use Arrow for this because it makes sense. And I was like, oh, there's a Go library for Arrow. Perfect. And I started going through it and finding, oh, it's missing this feature. It's missing that feature. Oh, I'm just, I'll, I'll contribute this thing. I'll contribute that thing. And I just kept doing that because, well, I, I, I wanted to do it in Go and not have to rewrite the entire thing and see the plus. So I just kept Makes adding sense. to the Go library instead. <laughs> And eventually they eventually they made me a committer and I became more active on the I became more active on the mailing list. And and then I was giving talks at conferences uh, about how we were using Arrow at 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 Backset and, and and then Pact, uh, the book publishing company, reached out to me and was like, Would you like to write a book? And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and, and I wrote a book. That is very cool, though. I, I did not expect to write a book. Uh, t tell us about that, then. You said you didn't expect to write a book. Uh, what's the story behind the book? What was that? I mean, I, I guess that, that was the story. I, I was okay. <laughs> well, I, I mean, but how did that lead to a book specifically? Did they Pact, ask you to write a book? Literally, yes. Okay. All right. Pact is the publisher for the book, and they. I just I got an email one day uh, from a product manager at PACT, and yeah. they were like, you know, we want to have a book on Arrow. Would you be willing to write a, a book? And at first, I thought that they were asking me to consult on a book. Uh -huh. And I was like, yeah, sure. I'd love to consult on a book. And then I met with them, and, they, and I was like, and they were like, no, we want you to write a book. I'm like, oh. <laughs> um, as, far as, as far as I can tell, they reached out to several people in the community. Mm -hmm. I just happened to be the guy that responded. Yeah. <laughs> cool. And now you're world famous among arrow users. I mean, the book's the book's selling well. I mean, it's a tech book, so it's, yeah. it's selling well for a tech book. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, the, the primary thing I, I know is like, shockingly, uh, my general way of handling interactions in keeping people engaged is humor. I know, weird, right? Um, and so I found that people really, like, like people kind of really enjoy my presentation style, mm. which tends to involve lots of memes and jokes. Yeah. Nice. And, 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 and so when I was 
writing the book, uh, my primary goal there was, I don't want this to be a dry book. Mm -hmm. I want this to be engaging, which means I need to write it in my voice and find some way to translate the way I talk, give presentations. And so there's just puns. There are Mm -hmm. puns everywhere. Um, One one of the ones I'm most proud of is a chapter called ODBC Takes an Arrow to the Knee. (laughs) (laughs) Very nice. Um, there's another spot and there's another spot in there. Uh, I, I talk about using MMAP and how you can leverage the arrow IPC format and MMAP to kind of keep memory usage down in certain ways and other things. And then I explain how that works. Well, I basically explain how virtual paging works. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but the, the, the heading for that section before that is just PLDR computers are magic. and you can kind of get the tone from there from from the like like i I tried as best i could to kind of keep that kind of fun tone with the book and 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 the other selling point of it is that it has examples and usage in python c plus plus and go throughout the book which is kind of different for tech books, which usually mm-hmm. will focus in one language, yeah. but kind of one of the important aspects of Arrow is that interoperability aspect of things. And so yeah. I wanted to have the examples in at least two, if not three languages to kind of showcase that. And and then I went around to conferences talking about the book and giving out free copies of the book. And now I and now I go around conferences as part of Voltron Data talking about the work we're doing with Arrow in general. That is very cool. It's really nice when jobs kind of uh, embrace like open source software. I think that's so much more common now than it used to be. It seemed like jobs were like so like afraid of this. Like, oh no, we can't have like our software just, you know, out on the web. How will we have any intellectual property or, or make money? And with now it just seems to be so software. much more of a given of like, ah, you know, there's software, it's out there. Let's go use it. I mean, I mean, so Vol- Voltron Data itself, I mean, I mentioned that Wes McKinney was one of the creators of, co-creators of Arrow. He's also one of the co-founders of Voltron Data. Mm. And Voltron, you know, we, we like, Arrow, Arrow itself is a primary aspect of the startup and the work we're doing. And so there's, a, and so a large amount of the current maintainers of Arrow actually do work at Voltron as we're moving through things. And so, you know, there, it, it, it's, it's really cool because there's that huge, um, you know, support of the Arrow community and the fact that the better the Arrow community does, that helps out Voltron data and itself also. And so I like being on the open source side of things where, like I said, my day job is I just get to work on the open source libraries, which makes me really, really happy. That's oh, great. Sure. That's why I tell everybody, like whoever asks me, like, oh, how do I get a job? I'm like, go find some open, go find like an open source software you can contribute to or oh, yeah. start yeah, I mean, writing, start I, just getting your work out there. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, if you can get your like like I, like I said, like I just started commit I just started contributing stuff, new features and things to Arrow, and that's how I ended up down this whole path. You know, and exactly that's exactly it. Like find a project you like, 
contribute to it. You know, there's always going to be features or things people want from it. You can find stuff for it and just have fun, be part of the community. And, you know, like like I've been, I've been like I've been working for the last you know, one of the one of my side things I've been doing for a long while now is I've been trying to grow the Arrow Go community because you know Python is your big go-to for data science nowadays. You don't you know when you think about data science you don't think Go currently. I've been trying to change that a bit. Good job. I, ho- I hope that, that uh, you have a great success there. I think I don't see why Go isn't used for stuff like that. Well, the, uh, problem, the problem is really the lack of the widely used libraries. Really what yeah. it is. Right. You know, there, there, there is no real like data frame thing for Go like, there, like you have pandas or polars for Python. Mm-hmm. And I've been trying to kind of promote Arrow as that for Go. You know, you know, and 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 and, and you know, I, I I created the I created a parquet implementation in Go that interoperates with Arrow. Um, I'm contributing to the Iceberg repo now. I'm making a Go Iceberg implementation. What is Iceberg? So, like, I was looking. All right, we're gonna get real off tangent here for a minute. I was looking at their website, and I was just like, "What? I don't I don't get it. Like, what? What is this? What is it? I don't know." I, Iceberg. So Iceberg is. Quote, unquote, a table format. Basically, it is a it's a bunch of metadata on top of other data files. But I already have parquet files, the parquet files. Why do, parquet I, need, files why do are, I need iceberg? So parquet files are immutable. If you want to update the parquet file, you have to rewrite it. And also, then you lose whatever was there before. Iceberg metadata gives you time travel, you can see snapshots at previous versions of the table. You can, you can do partitioning by grouping the multiple parquet files together as one table and get highly efficient reads and lookups. You also can have, you can also have parquet files that define these are data that was deleted, these are rows that were deleted from the table without having to rewrite the entire table. It, 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 it's, it's, it's a way of getting much more efficient scans, joins, lookups across a table that is made up of multiple and many data, set, data files and allowing you to have that, that time travel snapshotting ability to see what the, ta- what the table looked like at different points in time, which for a lot of workflows is very, very important. It also means that you can get much more easily um, acid compliance across the table of data updates, deletes. You can get transactional inter- interactions with the table, so on and so forth. You know, it, 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 you know, it, you got iceberg, or you got delta, or you got you know um, Apache hoodie. You know, Apache what? Hoodie, H-U-D-I. Hoodie, hoodie, okay. Hoodie. All right. That's the other. Those are the competing table format things. Um, personally, I think Iceberg is going to be the one that wins. That's my personal opinion. <laughs> that is very cool, except for the history. I don't know that I want 
that much adult supervision on what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) I can, I understand why it's useful. I'm just a little bit like, oh no, this is, this is going to tell on me, you guys. (laughs) It's like looking at your Git commit history and you're like, oh, we're going to squash that. I actually (laughs) contributed once to uh, Apache Superset and they were like, are you sure you don't want to squash these commits? And I was like, no, it's fine. They never asked me to commit again. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think that's a really good point because you were talking earlier about using um, open source as a way to land a job. But I think one of the other benefits of contributing to open source is that you learn how to work in the constraints of a larger community. You know, when you get ready to make that first contribution, you'll get feedback, hey, squash your commits or... And you need to test to cover this. And and I think it actually helps you level up your skills really, really quickly so that when you do land that job, you're able to start contributing to your new role a lot faster than you would be able to just out of school. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, mean, there's lots of things that I have learned from contributing to different projects. And also like some projects can get really, really interesting in the way they solve certain problems. And just seeing the way that certain problems are solved by different by different projects in and of itself is really, really cool. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, those peopling skills are really important. Like, you know, <laughs> back in the day when I occasionally hired people, I'd be like, oh, you know, have you worked on any projects? And then go see how... Go see how they deal with all that. And, um, you know, and that was kind of a big deciding factor on whether or not somebody could play nice with the other children on the playground while working you know, <laughs> on a collaborative project. It is fun. So, it was fun. Project collaboration is always an interesting adventure. <laughs> right. So what's in the, what's in the future for Arrow? Uh, so, so there's a couple of things. Um, I mean, like I said, there, we're adding the new data types and kind of, Make, make keep the relevance and also like interact better with things like DuckDB and Bellox and whatnot. Um, one of the things I'm I'm directly working on is improve is improving the non CPU APIs for the Arrow library, the Arrow C++ library. Um, like for example, I mentioned there's the C data interface for passing data back and forth between runtimes in a process. Um, we recently added a extension to that uh, of a device array so that you can take data on, let's say, a GPU and pass that between runtimes, you know, like from Python to C++ to share different libraries without having to copy the data back to the CPU and then back to the device. But you can leave the data on the device the whole time and pass the device pointers through. Wow. And and so we're uh, kind of like pushing that API up through the library, make it easier to manipulate and to leverage non-CPU memory with Arrow in the existing libraries. Like, like currently there's a couple spots where it kind of blindly tries to validate things. And then if your data is not on the CPU, if you have a GPU array, it just blows up because the pointers are device pointers. Because it's like, oh, I'm just going to validate this thing. It's like, oh, wait, no. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm working through fixing those, finding and fixing those spots in the library to make sure that it's much more cohesive and consistent throughout it. And there's other, other people are looking at 
you know, better interoperability with other ML spaces, you know, like, like PyTorch and, 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 and those other like ML libraries and seeing how we can improve the interoperability between of Arrow with those libraries. Um, there's a large effort, GeoArrow and GeoParquet for, ge you know, geolocation stuff and, geolo and geographical um, data sets and representing them in good ways. And there's a lot of, there's a whole effort going on there. Uh, and then, like I mentioned, ADBC with database interactions, you know, we have the drivers we have, we're trying to improve and add more drivers. You know, I'm big, I'm, I'm also in that effort too. And we're trying to, you know, like I, I have a PR, I have an issue filed with uh, BigQuery to expose some arrow stuff so that I can create a BigQuery driver for ADBC, you know, and things like that. Um, so we, we, as far as like, you know, like what, what, you know, future, what's in the future, we're just kind of branching in lots of different places because it's a large community. One thing I'm curious about, since we're talking about in-memory data, like memory is ephemeral by nature and not guaranteed. So whenever you're accessing the arrow data, um, do the libraries validate that that memory location is still valid or is that up to the implementer or how do you handle that? Or is that not a concern at all? Uh, in, in, in most cases, the most of the implement it, it, it's barely up to the, to the implementer of the library for the language. Okay. Um, most, like for example, C++ library uses a lot of shared pointers and, and otherwise to kind of ensure the memory stays alive. Um, there are certain APIs that are explicitly marked as up to the caller to ensure that the pointer stays valid. Gotcha. You know, and, and so there, it, 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 the exact, you know, way of managing the memory is going to differ slightly between library to library because different languages have different ways of doing it. Yeah. Um, but Arrow also becomes a very, very efficient way to handle larger than memory data sets. Uh, um, the Arrow, Arrow, the C++ and Python libraries have the dataset library for Arrow, which is explicitly for handling larger-than-memory datasets and efficiently handling filtering and querying and doing joins and things like that to kind of manage streaming the data through. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, that seems like a whole rabbit hole that could go quite deep. It, it, it does and it is. <laughs> I'm just going to sit over here in the corner of my select star and be happy that someone else is working on that. That's right. That's where I'm at with all this too. Like, oh, look, at, look at all these people writing these nice libraries for me. I would also really like it if ChatGPT could do a better job with the uh, C++ Arrow implementation. If anybody is out there, you know, like listening to my wish list, that would be, I would very much appreciate that because I don't write C++ all the time. What, 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 what uh, it, it, just, like? it just gave me really like weird kind of like weird responses. I was kind of, I don't know. It wasn't like completely useless, but it was not, let's say, correct either. And there, I was just there. thinking like, oh, it'd be, it would be so nice. Because, you know, like C++, you just you have to remember so many things, especially yeah. if you go and, you know, code in like Perl or Python or something for a while. You don't have to remember types. And then you go back to C++, you're like, oh, what are all these words? Like, what is this? You know, it would just be nice like, if uh, ChatGPT could, you know, take care of some of that for me. I don't think I've, I've never coded in Go. 
Well, I don't have any opinion on that. Oh, you should check out I the know. Cup of Go podcast. It has some really good pointers and tips yeah. on using that. I'm and, sure it does. Yeah. It's very, very nice. I like it. There's also a really cool uh, YouTube channel called Boldly Go you should check out. Shameless self promotion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what the show is for. I well, do I mean, like Boldly Go. At least three times. Old to go, the, the your YouTube channel is actually really, really well done. Oh, well, thanks. I have a, I, I hired a really great editor I found through a mutual uh, acquaintance. <laughs> oh, nice. That's probably good for him because um, that that mutual counterpart's probably leaving that editor hanging recently. <laughs> <laughs> you know, going off and running marathons instead of right. making YouTube videos. What's wrong with you? All right. Well, I think we got through. After all my questions, at least, does anybody else have any questions? Or Matt, was there anything else you wanted to wanted to bring up? No, I mean, I, I think I've mentioned all the things I can think of. Um, uh, I mean, I got uh, let's see here. Um, I'll be at a conference in November in Sweden, actually, Sweden. talking about Arrow cool. and stuff, um, which will be kind of which will be a lot of fun. Cool. Nice. Well, if you happen to fly through Amsterdam, stop by. We can have a coffee together. So the flight actually drops me in Copenhagen. Okay. Cool. And then I take a train from there. That'll be a fun trip. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I've never been before, so it'll be great. I can only imagine that it's like the um, the Tom Hanks movie, Polar Express. What's the movie with like the train that, um, I don't know, there was like some kind of apocalypse and the only thing that's running is that train. And it's the post-apocalyptic. Oh, I oh yeah, that was the um, that was a Brad Pitt movie, wasn't it? I don't remember now. I saw it a while ago, but hopefully your trip doesn't end up like that. <laughs> I, I hope so too. <laughs> yeah, I think we can all hope that. Trying to pop the top is going on the train. The it's going to be you know, step off and it's just fire everywhere. Yeah, but all right, let's not go putting those kind of thoughts into the universe. Um, we're where can people get a hold of you if they, you know, want to, to be like Matt, come talk about all the cool Arrow stuff or write us a book and make millions of dollars, that kind of thing? Uh, I mean, I'm I am easily found on GitHub. I'm uh, Zero Shade. You can find me on Twitter with the same name, Zero Shade. Uh, you can find me on Mastodon, uh, LinkedIn. You can search me my name. You'll find, I, I have, you know, the author of In Memory Analytics, Arrow, in my little name thing, so you can find me easily on LinkedIn. You know, all of the above. And the, the book is available on Amazon or from that website directly. Nice. Well, I guess let's do some picks. Who wants to go first? I can go first. I can go. No. Will, you go. Well, now you two have to, like, battle it out. I mean, right. that's clearly the only solution. Fight, fight. Right. <laughs> Jonathan's got his green screen here, so there should be some really great special effects happening. Yeah, I can't compete with that. You know. <laughs> so I'll go then, since we're just sitting here. So uh, on topic, uh, somehow recently, YouTube, uh, which I have been watching, uh, has started showing me videos from uh, Blumenek. I think that's how you pronounce it. Which is kind of interesting uh, channel about arrows. So I thought it would be perfect to talk about today. He's a, an archer uh, who makes short little videos about archery. And I've never been an archer, but it's kind of cool because he talks about like 
fantasy movies and, and video games and and are these things they do in uh, in these settings are they realistic and he kind of demonstrates so he, t- he t- uh, a recent video i watched was uh, taking a scene from robin hood uh, men in tights i think where the the, the character shoots like six <laughs> arrows at once and they and they pin a guy to the wall it's like is this possible so he you know, like he he starts with one arrow then two then three and works his way up and uh, talks about you know it, is there any plausibility to this? And and, and you're, you're, I was honestly surprised at how not completely bogus some of these movies and video games are. <laughs> so that's my pick for the week is uh, Blumenick, B-L-U-M-I-N-E-C-K on YouTube. Cool. I will, I will stay on topic then. My pick for today is going to be um, the Diamond Archery Bow from Bowtech. I, I have one out in the backyard fire off some some arrows and it's it's actually a surprisingly fun hobby because you don't need a lot of space to do it you do need like a reliable backstop in case your arrow doesn't go where you intended it to go so that's one tip worth noting but um but it's it's actually fun because there's a lot of a lot of subtleties to archery that are fun to just work on you know from um working on holding your breath and controlling the um, controlling the release and then setting the tension on the bow. You can actually turn it into a strength workout by adjusting the tension. And you can get started with it relatively inexpensive. Um, you can buy find a bow, either new or used for any budget, but it's, it's actually a lot of fun. So my personal bow is a, a diamond archery bow from Bowtech. And uh, yeah, there you go. Cool. What about you, Matt? Do you have any picks? Uh, I guess I'll go with the the uh, Baldur's Gate three that I've been playing. Nice, <laughs> just like I've been playing that constantly. I'm literally downloading that right now on my <laughs> brand new Steam Deck. Ooh, I, I haven't. You have the Steam Deck. It, it just I was arrived about to pick. I want to know about it. It just arrived today. That's why I can't pick it yet. I haven't played anything on it. So <laughs> <laughs> it it, it like looks cool. I don't know if it's fun yet. I haven't tried it. But I I've played Baldur's Gate three. I played the pre release about two and a half years ago it's been that long that when my i actually looked at it it was a week before my son was born it was the last time i played it <laughs> That's imagine that so. maybe i'll have a chance now with the steam deck to play it again oh, <laughs> now that it's no, finally Jonathan, been released that means you need to have another baby That's i do have works. another baby <laughs> and you don't talk about another another baby <laughs> <laughs> like baby twins clearly he does not need sleep no <laughs> I mean, how old is the, is the youngest one now? You could have another one. So stay tuned. Uh, I'll, I'll probably be picking a Steam Deck in a week or two once I've had a chance to actually use it. And a new kid. Got to keep the velocity yeah, up. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, right. Keep that velocity going. Got to supply me with ever-constant baby pictures. That's what I need. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll just keep on, uh, I guess, the video game and archery theme and pick Horizon Forbidden West. That is a really fun game, and it has... Uh, like very smooth mechanics in it. So you like run around and jump and climb and shoot bows and it's a very cool world. I played the first one. The first one, the first one had really good mechanics too, but the second one is like, I don't know if they went like all in on the mechanics and the very pretty scenery, because that seemed to be what everybody liked the best. And it's <laughs> nice when developers, you know, like when a game studio actually listens, they're like, Oh, these are the things that people like. And so let's keep them. Unlike Sonic the Hedgehog, you know, like saying I'm looking at you over here. Hey, hey, 
Sonic Frontiers was actually pretty good. I haven't played that one yet. I gave up after, I forget. There was one I played when my daughter was little. Um, I don't remember what it's called now, but then I was like, no more. I'm just going to stick with the like Sega Genesis emulator Sonics and like play like Sonic 3 over and over and over again. All right. But anyway, yeah, exactly. As one should. <laughs> uh, and then my other pick is a book. It's called Million Dollar Outlines, which was recommended to me by one of my sisters. And I've, I've been kind of on this kick lately of understanding the psychology of story, mostly because it's it's really interesting. And I think it really fits whether you want to write fiction or nonfiction. In fact, you know, like Matt here was saying, the best uh, nonfiction is the kind that's not really dry and has like, you know, at least some kind of human, I don't know, an intervention in it, I guess. So kind of understanding these same sort of like flows of stories and how you have these emotional hooks and how you like create a point and build up to that point, all that kind of thing is really relevant, whether you want to write fiction or nonfiction, because it's all just, you know, human psychology and neuroscience, which is kind of nice for me because every once in a while I like to get back to my neuroscience roots. So that's it. Billion Dollar Outline. Go read it. It's fun. Have you read uh, Joseph Campbell, I think, Man with a Thousand Faces? I think that's the right title. No, I've read, what is it, like Power? I've read a bunch of the other ones, like Power of Myth or um, Neil Gaiman has a really good book about about Norse mythology and it covers a lot of this kind of like this kind of like the psychology behind it you know like well why like why do we have these stories in the first place and it seems like there's some kind of like very common human psychological underpinning that yeah it goes like but it goes like it's fascinating because it goes like across cultures and these places where people you know likely didn't talk to each other right like Norse mythology and Greek mythology and you see all these same kind of similar themes. Yeah, so, it, I was on a deep dive really, for a while. Well, I think one of the more interesting things I've seen is when people draw these similarities between the different mythical creatures in like the mythologies of different places that are effectively similar creatures in completely unconnected cultures, and then try and then do the 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 kind of like reverse engineer. What is it? that was in that environment that led to those myths and those and that and that thought of that creature that showed up in these two completely unconnected cultures. And it, it's really interesting when people when people do that. You know, like like like, like almost every culture has a vampire type myth. Hmm. Almost every culture has a dragon a or other large lizard myth. Well, that Jonathan? I said every culture must have met my mother-in-law then. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally kidding. I love my mother-in-law. I, I, she's a sweet lady. There's not, nothing wrong with her. I just couldn't think of who else to say. I didn't want to say my wife. <laughs> Sacrifice it all for the punchline. <laughs> uh, definitely would have been the wrong thing to say. Well played. Well played. <laughs> Team player. Baby pictures ideas. That never gets you in trouble. My mother-in-law doesn't even speak English, so there's no way she'll ever hear this. So (laughs) (laughs) that's why you do it safe. No, listen, mother-in-law, like, man, me and my in-laws don't speak the same language either, and yet they always know things. Always. (laughs) They always know things. And your kids are getting older, they'll start telling on you soon. Like, it's all downhill from here. 
Just this is why everybody is supposed to have more babies so that I can look at the baby pictures. <laughs> can those babies be like fuzzy with curvy kittens instead? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fine. I'll accept that. All right. Well, I think, uh, you know, the time of the show where we've gotten real off topic has finally arrived. Or might have arrived from the beginning of the show. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> sure. So we're going to sign off for this week and we will see you all next week. Bye. Right on. See you, everyone.